Hello, and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. I'm Jeff Hopkins, and I'm joined by my good friends Richard Manfredi Hello. and Michael Winfield. Howdy. These guys, you know the drill. They have strong opinions, and they share them with each other, and they don't agree on a lot of stuff. Some stuff they do agree on, but it's still a joy to sit here and kind of play referee as they debate the top four things that best represent a certain topic. And this week's topic is albums you want to have on a deserted island. Is it desert island or deserted island? Does desert mean it's deserted? I think they, they're both kind of flip-flop. Does it mean they, there's lots of dessert there? Does it mean there's dessert? Check the S's. Okay. All right. Okay. So um, we have probably, you've probably heard this uh, as a way to discuss the top food or the top, you know, something you would want, a book or something like that, or if you were trapped with a, uh, a a person who would the person be but music is is something that these guys are discussing whose topic was this uh this was mine and i think that this comes down to very personal choices yeah oh yeah so i don't think that this is going to be a list or you know choices that everyone will agree with and be yeah. like oh well th- that's a definitive it's yeah. a very personal thing yeah and so when i was writing this or came up with the idea you know it's such a hacky trope yeah that i thought all right i gotta set some rules Okay. So here's here's my the rules that I went by when I was determining mine. Sure. One, I had to like it. I couldn't just go out and find something online, the best album of all time. It had to be something that I was already into. Yeah. Because I'm I'm gonna be on a an island He's by a myself, big I assume. Kelly Clark fan. Kelly Clarkson. Uh that's what he is. Clark fan is what you would okay. like it. Clark Kelly fan. Okay. So uh, you have to like it. Uh I have to be able to play it over and over. Yeah. Uh it has to serve some sort of function. On the on the island, no what? comp. What is that? You know, we'll get there. Okay, okay. No oh, compil- this- no no compilation type albums. Are these your rules or our rules? No, these are my rules. Okay, okay. This okay. is this how I personally. We 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 agreed ahead of time. No greatest hits. Yeah, that's uh, hot garbage. No greatest hits. No mixtapes. Okay. No best of. <clears throat> oh, okay. So like, because you, you can get away with a lot of stuff that way. So I guess my first choice. Oh no no, Richard goes first. Yeah, I do go first. Oh, and uh, after you. Well, thank you, sir. Well, while making my list, I tried to. One thing I tried to do is there's no Beatles on my list. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Michael. No. Which I thought something like that. If you just went by, you know, what are the greatest albums? It would be kind of okay. I'm going to put Revolver or Sgt. Pepper, and maybe you know, Rolling Stones album and a you know, Dylan album. And it's like, that's so boring. Like, that's just, here's, here are four great albums. Yeah. And I also tried to avoid talking about any, any artists we've already talked about. Cause honestly, I probably would have put, put a replacements album on here, but we had a whole episode where we talked quite ex- extensively about the replacements. Okay. So I just felt like that wasn't necessary. So I, I did go a little bit in terms of my kind of musical uh, progression from kind of a, a kid who didn't didn't know no better about music mm-hmm. until kind of a little bit more of an adult and what I kind of got into later in life. So I'll go with my first one uh, chronologically from that standpoint, and that would be Skylarking by oh, okay. XTC. Uh, this was an album that, for myself, it was probably the first alternative album that I got into that wasn't something I got into through my brother, which was, I think we discussed this in previous episodes, my brother was kind of the cool older brother who is listening to the replacements and stuff like that so this was the first one that i really kind of got into independently and this is the album that has dear god on it Mm -hmm. um which i should say uh, eventually had it on there it was actually not on the first pressing of this album there was a song called mermaid smiled and dear god was just like the b-side to the first single but everyone kept playing that side instead Mm -hmm. and then it started to become a hit so they wound up repressing it replacing Mermaid Smile with this. I actually don't think Dear God's that great of a song. It's it? probably the weakest song on the album. But... Was it the one they argued about the mix so it missed the album or something like that? Cause... Might have been. I think No, actually, I think Andy Partridge didn't wind up loving it. He thought he didn't yeah. do a really good job of dealing with the subject. Okay. So he kind of went for it, kind of argued for it to get taken off the album. Oh. Now, why is, now, why is this album... What does this stand out like as an album compared to the other XTC albums that you could have chosen? Well, it kind of few reasons one it kind of comes at a very important time for them you know um, Andy Partridge was no longer touring their album sales partially because that had really dipped then they had come out with this Dukes of Stratosphere project which was basically them under assumed names writing 
songs to sound very similar to a lot of the psychedelic songs from the 60s hmm. that actually wound up outselling their last regular album, which is kind of embarrassing for everybody. Yeah. But because of that, the label decided, okay, we can make a hit. You guys have some momentum. We're going to go ahead and spend some money and get a real record producer for you guys, a big record producer. They kind of want, and they eventually stumbled onto Todd Rundgren, who kind of becomes the hero slash villain of this tale. And at the same time, Andy Partridge, the lead songwriter for the band, was really starting to, I think, embrace not just the Beatles influences, which were always there in his music, but also the Beach Boys, which plays kind of a heavy kind of melody and vocal sort of influence mm-hmm. of it with this album. Like on Grass has uh, almost like pet sounds. Yeah, kind of definitely stuff. definitely that kind of era, the smile period mm-hmm. sort of, of Beach Boys. But it's in terms of an album, it's just... It's it's supposed to be a one of those concept albums, which are generally crap and generally not a concept. I think the idea is supposed to t- take you through the course of a day from like morning till night. Eh, kind of does that, kind of doesn't. Mm-hmm. Ignore the ignore the concept. Mm-hmm. But it's I think it's it's just such a beautiful and well put together album. I mean, you it it's lush. You can just sort of it's it's this it's, elements of orchestral pop it's got some like kind of power pop and almost kind of like you know very beatles-esque kind of guitar driven songs well the big single was well i thought well, the first big single was as uh, dear god but the first single was grass mm-hmm. was actually a song by colin molding um but the first song on the album was a song called summer's cauldron which i think kind of reflects this sort of sweeping kind of like I said orchestral nature of this orchestral rock nature of this album cool. that was really super innovative and really holds up So I said, and, and, and uh, the album kind of has a lot of little detours here and there. Like I said, there's a few. There's one song, um, "Season Cycle," which he has basically said was him trying to write, rewrite "Autumn Almanac" from the Kinks. <laughs> there's an, another couple of songs that are very like, like I said, Beatlesy, but it's this great kind of like sonic mix. And I mentioned Todd Rundgren, and him and Anti Partridge wound up hating each other, um, just just did not get along on any level and they were stuck at a bears bearsville up in Mm -hmm. like woodstock new york which is this the recording studio that's way up in the mountains there's fuck all to do so they were bored hated each other um every day when todd rungan would walk down the hill to do for rehearsals the band would start playing the munsters theme because okay. <laughs> they thought he looked a lot like Herman Munster. And he never really figured out why they would do that. But it was just, he was, Andy Partridge is a very controlling type of person. And I think that was probably the first time he had ever really been produced. Yeah. Where he had a producer basically take songs that he, he liked and say, well, that doesn't really fit in with the album. And just say, we're not going to record that. Mm. Or make wholesale, suggest wholesale changes. Mm-hmm. To the songs, I mean, he's very much someone who is protective of a song like a baby, I think. Yeah. And it was the first time that someone had really come in and produced him. And, you know, not surprisingly, I think it's the first time that it's a, it's probably the most fully realized and cohesive album they ever made. Mm-hmm. So you're on a desert island and you're alone and you've got Wilson, your volleyball, and you're probably eating conch, you know, fritters or something like that. What would this music be playing what what part of your day? Just like bathing in the in the tide pool? Yeah, or? this is this would be a really good sort of like yeah, sort of swimming in the ocean, kind of yeah. trying to forget, you know, kind of just trying to like last lose all my thoughts. Last night's suicide attempt. Yeah, kind of recover you. recover from that a little bit. <laughs> okay. Richard, I know you. There's no way you're bathing anywhere. <laughs> well, bathe is a strong term. <laughs> all right, Michael, what's your first one? Uh, my first one. Richard kind of hit on this earlier when he mentioned like the Beatles and like the White Album, because I was thinking. I'm going to be here a long time. But I didn't want to talk about the White Album. So I thought, what is another, like, 
something that I can get into and not necessarily get tired of mm -hmm. over, I don't know, how many years I'm going to be there. Is it a weird album? <laughs> Why haven't... Okay. Why aren't any of his albums titled The Weird, weird Album? Album. Hmm, it's he know. owes us money. Yeah, yeah. Get on this. Uh, it is the uh, three-part album, 69 Love Songs by the Magnetic oh, Fields. Yeah. And, you know, partly I chose it for length. Right. But mostly... I, it. They're just so such because a, the number sixty nine. The number sixty nine. So there's just such a great variation of music mm -hmm. around, like the central theme of love, and uh, Stephen Merritt, the main guy from it. I guess they're they're all kind of the main people. The same three or four people have been together for a long time, mm -hmm. and they kind of trade off who sings the songs depending on what type of song it is. And they have little country ballads, and they have pop songs, and they have um, kind of theater musical numbers mm -hmm. um but and like weird songs like there's a song called like fido your leash is too long which is yeah. strange fido, your leash is too long you go where you don't belong you've been digging in the rubble getting pictures and trouble fido your leash is it, too it's long. just odd it's it's, yeah. it's like it all fits within the context of the album and i guess when he was originally writing it he was like, I'm going to write a hundred Stephen Songheim kind of inspired theater sort of songs. And he's like, well, a hundred's too long. So let's just cut it 69. down to 69. Would you agree that this is one of those albums that is better listened to as a whole album instead of just picking out individual songs? Yeah, there are, def there are definitely individual songs that you're like, I, I don't necessarily need to listen to that. Mm -hmm. But like as a concept album that's just all about one subject, there's like – there's not a flow, but there's like a thought process. I think that there is like an execution that really hasn't been accomplished. Like it, it almost feels like like Beatles songs where, you know, Paul McCartney would write weird kind of cute songs yeah. that John Lennon would hate. Your granny's drawers, you would say. <laughs> but like, I don't know. There's stuff. Uh, let me pick out one in particular. Like Busby Berkeley Dreams is mm -hmm. a song uh, that is – very rich and very theatery. Of course, of course, but no, you can't have a divorce. I haven't seen you in ages, but it's not as bleak as it seems. We still dance on whirling stages in my But then another one like um, when my when my boy walks down the street is very uh, poppy. character and that he's always just kind of trying to write the perfect pop song uh, and he's like never gonna get there he uh -huh. has a great there's a great documentary about him and magnetic fields called strange powers oh i never heard of it it's great it's like and it really kind of gets into he's kind of panged and kind of alone but just really terribly interesting and it, you know mm -hmm. having three out three hours of music from one album i felt like it was yeah a nice little coup did you acquire this album within the realm of a relationship. Like, I got this album from my ex-wife. It was like a Valentine's gift or an oh. ex-girlfriend, I think it was. So it was kind of almost like I was perceived when I got it as kind of like a love poem or something. And, I, yeah. I don't think so. I mean, I, I got... I had one of their albums get lost before this one. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was, you know, in the early 2000s when you're just kind of looking for music online... Yeah. And whether it's like the kind of a Napster generation, it's like I can get – I found like 10 different magnetic fields. Oh, yeah. And you yeah. didn't realize they were across three or four different albums. Yeah. And then you realize that most of them were from this one yeah. expansive album. I thought that – you know, that's how you – I initially got them in bits and pieces uh, and eventually – That's a fascinating aspect of learn, finding music or entertainment in this kind of download generation where you can consume an, entire, an artist's entire catalog – and back in the day, if you were ripping stuff off Napster or something, you wouldn't know the chronology. Sometimes you wouldn't even have the cover. You would have no idea where it came in the 
the discography. So right, you just get an album, and it'd be like, oh, this must be their best album because look yeah. at the cover. Yeah. I, I'm I'm always big on listening to an album all the way through and all the time. Like mm-hmm. I, I'll put on one album, listen to it. I know that like my wife Emily, she will download an album, listen to the ones that she likes, then will delete the ones that she doesn't. I, I can't do that. I, yeah. There's a weird like completionist right. part of me that's like it was kind of. And I wonder if that's an age difference thing because I know she's a few years younger, old, younger than you at least. And I wonder if that's still being from the CD at least generation versus all digital mm-hmm. maybe maybe yeah knowing that an album is programmed to make a statement from one song to another they chose that order for a reason and it's funny because like the the three albums uh, for 69 love songs start with a song called uh, absolutely cuckoo and end with a song called zebra so there's uh, so it's weird <laughs> it's, Zabba. A it to starts Z. from abba to Z. <laughs> call back guys Okay, so uh, these gentlemen have chosen their first. Uh, Michael, you were listening to 69 Love Songs on your deserted island while you did sandcastles. Uh, what were you? <laughs> All kinds of things. It's Fro- frolicking in the waves as well. Frolicking in the waves alone. What's your second, Richard? So my second one, kind of fast forward a few years, I am now probably 15 or 16. I am in the jazz band at my school, and I'm getting very much into jazz, but not... Not just kind of your Charlie Parker type, you know, swing sort of stuff and bop, but also kind of more the experimental side of jazz. And I've got a a few friends of mine who are pretty much all the drummers in the band who are a bunch of weirdos like me and are getting into that as well, especially one of my really good friends, Chris Holder. And we both uh, stumbled onto Naked City by John Zorn. And this kind of became the album for me it served a couple of purposes. One, it was kind of the album that made me really open up to experimental music and that music didn't have to be kind of your one, four five key change, mm-hmm. you know, kind of standard 12 bar blues sort of based music. And it was also fun. And we'll get to it when we get to the album is it's so damned weird and aggressive that it would we'd go cruising on Blackstone Boulevard in Fresno and everyone else would be pumping like, you know, I don't know, Dr. Dre or something like that. And we'd have this weird <laughs> screaming <laughs> suddenly transitioning to swing jazz yeah. and suddenly going back to screaming blasting and we would just get the strangest fucking looks. So John Zorn is a a jazz saxophonist and kind of came to prominence in the late 70s, early 80s. He would do these things called game pieces that would basically be all improvisational and they were structured like games and he would be basically the umpire and he would do things like he would hold up different signs that would mean that different musicians had to do different things. Like one sign might mean that you had to take a solo. Another sign might mean you could only play these three notes and you had to build something off of that. Or another one would be that you had to use a duck call. <laughs> so he kind of made his name based off of that. Did a lot of mixture of everything from this really super experimental stuff to more looking at soundtracks. He did an album of Ennio Morricone. Mm-hmm. Uh, songs, for example. So this was came out in 1988, and it started out, it was him and a lot of the kind of downtown New York avant-garde musician types. So like uh, Bill Frizzell's on guitar, Wayne Horowitz is on keyboards, a lot of these guys who were in this kind of like cool New York underground jazz movement then. And it really was almost, like, he called it a compensational workshop to te- really to test the limits of what you could do like in a rock band format. And when you guys go and listen to this, I would a couple of things. One, it's probably not one. It's probably not for you. No. Two. This is experimental music that should have been defunded. (laughs) Two. Hey, he 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 got a MacArthur Genius Grant. No. He's a genius. Way in hell. He's a genius. MacArthur said so. A Jenny McCarthy genius grant? <laughs> yeah. It's all about st- studying the relationship between music and autism. And vaccination. <laughs> the second thing is you, is, uh, you really do kind of have to listen to this one as a whole album 
you kind of got to stick through it because it does have kind of a comp- compositional f- flow to it. So basically, it is, it's almost like having a radio that's permanently stuck on scan in a some sort of weird world where there's no pop radio. So it's all this like mix of like surf music and kind of film noir scores along with hardcore like thrashcore and, and metal. Um, they got uh, Yamasuda Ai, who is with the uh, Japanese, I guess, thrashcore kind of punk band, The Eyes, to come in and just provide basic screaming and yelling on some, some of these tracks. <laughs> Richard, you were, a, you were a DJ, right, in college? I was. This is the type of music that you play at 4 a.m. when you can't play real music. <laughs> um, this is also the type of thing that you would play and just put two or three songs on and just go to the bathroom or have a smoke <laughs> or whatever you would need to do. That's always a pro tip if you're a college, uh, aspiring college radio DJ. Longer songs, experimental shit. How, how go get this, it, go get it, go get a smoke. How, what I really respect about this choice is from, I think of the utilitarian items that you would take with you on a deserted island and the idea that you know, a shirt would also be your towel and it would maybe a tourniquet and maybe the thing you hang yourself with later. But this... It's al- getting dark here. This, this album, second suicide reference, by the way. <laughs> this yeah. album is so... Um, like what I've heard, yeah, like the time changes and then the it might go from sounding like a big band to then sounding like the the thrash metal kind of thing. Right. Does this have a lot of utility for you? Do do all those changes mean it does more it's almost like a Swiss Army knife of music. Well, it's kinda interesting. When you listen to the album, it has this pattern of the early songs and then later songs are a little bit more traditional maybe. They have some of the soundtrack stuff. They have like the Soundtrack to the James Bond theme or Chinatown. Batman. Well, Batman's not actually a take, I don't think, on the Batman oh. sound. Yeah. It's called a Batman. So same kind of mood to it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, John Zorn's also a big fan of Carl Stalling, who is the oh, yeah. uh, composer for a lot of Looney Tunes stuff mm-hmm. and that kind of idea of just you know, all of a sudden these zingy noises would come mm-hmm. in and sort of break things up. Um, from a utilitarian standpoint, I think... It doesn't have to be. I just No, uh, no. I think for me, sort of why it's on here for me, it's yes, it's very specifically tied to a certain point in my life, which I think a lot of these are going to kind of wind up being for us. Yeah. You know, I think it is sort of a litmus test for me. I mean, I, I wind up playing this for people and just see what kind of reaction I can get out of them. I think a, it's a knife into their throat. <laughs> I think it's also, we, you know, in, in the album, you talk about like the different changes in, in tempo and type of music. This was all written out and scored and played live. This wasn't like edited in. So they do 30 seconds of a swing and then all of a sudden just drop in this like speedcore metal stuff they were doing this just live like cut to cut to cut to cut and it was the first time I, th- I know for me as a musician where I was challenged as a listener and it, honestly it's not something that I listen to all the time anymore but it's something that I go back to and I still find kind of new mm-hmm. weird interesting stuff in it yeah you know if there's a Swiss army knife feature about this album it's really the one that would motivate me to get off the island <laughs> as fast as possible True. to get away from whatever this is <laughs> I, I could also be, I, by I, the way it could also be used to ward off any uh, animals <laughs> that might be trying to attack me just like, play that at volume I, re- I always respect your music taste but like of like I can't like this I listen to this all the way through and I just I couldn't I couldn't I I couldn't fathom what you would like enjoy out of this and th- this is like this is one of four you have and like this is like I don't know it was just it just didn't yeah but like I said but I yeah. but I totally understand that I I uh. listen there's probably four or five people I know who like this and several hundreds I've probably played this for over the years who so just look <laughs> at me with the strangest look um I think there's isn't it interesting it's an element of it now that is Kind of that short attention span that we have. I think people are starting to really get even more so with the internet and this idea that you just switch from watching a YouTube video about 
you know, a metal song to, you know, a cooking thing to something else to something else. Oh, uh, Emily and I were at a concert. We were at a, a Modest Mouse concert, and there was someone sitting in front of us. And the speed at which this girl, like, flipped back and forth between Instagram and Facebook and her messages, it was, like, so chaotic and so hectic. And I'm sure she would have put on music or watched a YouTube video, too. But it was such a different, like, I agree, it was such a different time for people that are so inundated by... Yeah, so many just different distractions to yeah. sit down and listen to an album like this or any of these is like it's it feels so rare. Yeah, I mean it really is. Even though it's made in '88, it does kind of I think reflect that sort of modern inability that people have now to sort of focus on one thing for a long period of time. Okay, so uh, what's your next, Michael? Uh, my next one is. Listen, I might be hallucinating a little bit. Oh boy! You know you're on the island. You're on the island. You've had salt water every day for the last four days. Found some mushrooms that you thought would be good to put in your uh, (laughs) food. Turned out wrong mushrooms. Okay, but like, what if? You know, this is all hypothetical. Yeah. What if there's like a cool guy there? What if there's just like this a random cool guy on this island? Oh yeah. Whether I'm hallucinating him or not, I'm not going to be on that island, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I chose uh, an album called Radio uh, uh, Kid A by Radiohead. Now, this is also an album that I don't feel like I appreciate enough as it is. It was a big U-turn for them in terms of their music when it first came out in 99 or 2000, and maybe 2001, where it got really – it was really strange and really less rocky and very you know, heavily into synthesizers mm-hmm. and a more digital kind of landscape of music yeah. that – I think took everyone like I think it came out and everyone was like who who is this and I think it's like one of those that if I had a full album and if I'm there by myself or if there's you know imaginary cool guy that I need to impress yeah it's definitely like this album that I'd like to like drill down into you like Pink Floyd well listen to this <laughs> uh, I mean it starts out uh, with a song called Everything in its right in its right place and it kind of just builds. like these highs and lows through it uh so idiotique is a little more like um like beat driven So I think it's I think that they are one of those bands that I always want to get into more and I always like them but I never like them enough and being out there on a desert island oh. being like I can really give you the time to really dig I can in. really mm-hmm. get into this without mm-hmm. like you know the distractions that we've been talking about kind of drive us. Yeah. You know it's funny I that you, this came up after the Naked City album because I think it's they're both driven by the same need for experimentation mm-hmm. and to do a broad range of things and try to explore, not be hemmed in by sort of genre expectations. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Radiohead, I think Kid A is obviously a lot more melodic and, you know, pop what did it, oriented. Yeah, what did it come out after? It came after OK Computer, which was like a strange. Yeah. I mean, it was, it kind of, you it could like see like the bridge album. Yeah, because before that was the Benz, yeah. which is like pretty much still them and very much kind of singer songwriter band mode and then by the time you get to kid a it's just very experimental like you said synth and have kind of beat driven some parts they and, had it yeah, yeah. And, and then but okay computer is like this weird sort of mash of the two yeah so yeah uh amnesiac came out after it. it was kind of like a part b to that album but i think that kid a is definitely like the more interesting more complete more uh i don't know like experimental as you said well it's, 
it's really funny as soon as you mentioned the cool guy on the island. Yeah. It made me think about I'm just going to go back to the Naked City thing real quick. Yeah. Um more than anything else, I remember I, looking back on me being 15 and listening to this, that's what I wanted that album to project to other people. Hmm. That I was cool. I was like indie and art and uh, I could have been hanging out with Lou Reed, you know, in yeah. the Bowery in New York if You're only John I wasn't John Lurie in the Lounge Lizard. Yeah, if only I wasn't stuck in this, you know, two-bit <laughs> town, you know. Yeah. That's what I wanted people to think. I was like the hippest guy in Fresno, basically <laughs> hippest kid ever. But it sounds like that album sounds like a texture, a landscape, and a, a world that you can disappear into and discover and have time to. Yeah, you to, can disappear yeah. during how to disappear completely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it's very influenced by a lot of those kind of minimalist modern composers, almost like a John Glass mm-hmm. or somebody like that. The first side of the album has been played. Before we flip it over to the other side to continue, I'm going to ask you, the listener, to support the Mount Rushmore podcast. It's really easy. Just Google Mount Rushmore podcast and go out to our website or go out to our Facebook or go to our Instagram and interact with us. Um, Please leave some comments on the Facebook. Tell us if you like the podcast. Tell us what suggestions you might have for future episodes. Uh, go find us on iTunes and rank and review the podcast if you wouldn't mind. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Tell us the things that you enjoy and tell us the things you'd like us to never, never, ever, 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 ever do again. We'd appreciate that. We're also on Twitter at Mount Rushmore Podcast. So check that out. So uh, help us out. Get in the dialogue. We'd love to hear from you. All right, we are back, and these gentlemen have put in their first two choices as to albums that they would want to have on a desert island, and Richard is going to give us his third. Okay, so we're going to transition a little bit into me in the early stages of college, end of high school, and got into ska, because I think that's what everyone does in the early stages of college, um, end of high school. I I never really got into reggae. Like I, I like Bob Marley. I got no problem with Bob Marley. You can put on Legend, and it's great music. I don't like people who like Bob Marley, who are like really into Bob Marley. I'm so with you. I'm it's so just, with you because yeah. it just feels like it's. It just feels like it's. This is the it's an affectation. It's, yeah, it's or some sort of like. It's the it's the Che Guevara poster yeah. of music for like white white college guys who've discovered pot for the first time. Yeah, we it could did, do a little Mount Rushmore of like. <laughs> 19 year old college dorm posters yeah. that include that the Klimt uh, there's also Jim Morrison people and there's uh-huh. also maybe uh, uh, a, a poster from um, Scarface yeah yeah so it, so I discovered weed and they're also so I also like the music and this religion that purports to support the weed. constant consumption of weed well and also it makes make, it makes the person feel like this seem like they're kind of deeper yeah or they're like well i'm in world music you know i listen to marley yeah okay sure whatever guy uh-huh. um the, actually where i grew up there's a pretty substantial ska scene there's a band called let's go bowling oh yeah i uh, you've heard of them mm-hmm. before so, yeah they they grew up in, they were from my hometown of kingsburg mm-hmm. uh, my brother grew up with all, with all of them so they still play around so they want to be in a pretty influential i guess third wave ska band so there's a pretty decent ska scene there so I kind of got into it through that, and then and you were jazz. You were I was jazz a jazz band. guy, so I could yeah. appreciate some of the horns and horns yeah. and the different sort of feel to the music. He just made a trombone sound, a trombone <laughs> uh, <laughs> arm movement as well, like that. And eventually, it kind of led me to these Trojan Records compilations, which was one of the record labels in Jamaica, and they would just come out with compilation after compilation in the eighties, and just. Any type of, of authentic, quote, air quotes here, but, you know, ska, reggae type stuff. And that's where I kind of fell in love with some of the deeper stuff. That eventually led me to the soundtrack to the movie The Harder They Come, mm-hmm. um, which is primarily Jimmy Cliff, or he's certainly the main artist, but there's several other artists who are involved in the soundtrack. And this came out in 1973, um, soundtrack to the movie that also starred Jimmy Cliff, which is kind of a... It's kind of like a Shaft meets yeah. you know, kind of a, almost like a Jamaican version of Shaft mm-hmm. in some ways. I don't say it's a great movie, but it's actually it's got its it's it's got its um, points of interest. It's certainly I think worth watching if you're into that sort of thing. 
But the album itself was probably the f- thing that broke reggae and ska in, in certainly in the United States. Mm-hmm. And as an album, it really does have some of the best kind of like reggae and ska songs you're going to find. Uh, Jimmy Cliff himself has several really good songs on there. They've got the, uh, I think probably the one most people know would be the actual title track. Let's go ahead and take a listen to real quick. actually two versions of this on the album there's a second one that's a little bit more uh i think it's like a outtake of it but he also does a cover of you can get it if you really want then there's also many rivers to cross which is this beautiful kind of ballad sort of talking almost being being at crossroads of your life and not sure almost this very mystical kind of yeah, quality like gospel many rivers to cross. very gospelly um annie lennox did a a version of it a few years ago that's absolutely just gorgeous. My way over. Pondering I am lost as I travel alone. But you've got a lot of the heavy hitters. you got uh, Toots and the Maytals mm-hmm. doing Sweet and Dandy and also doing Pressure Drop. And Pressure Drop might be, God, it's one of my favorite songs of oh, all yeah. time. It's an incredible song. You've got Desmond Decker doing a song. And then you've got these a lot of these bands that are just really were one hit or kind of this was their own one thing that they were known for. So like uh, the Slickers doing Johnny Too Bad, which is basically almost the plot of the, the movie itself. Or who else is it? Uh, the Melodians doing Rivers of Babylon, which is an incredible song in it. And the, uh, the Melodians really never went on to do anything, at least that made waves here in the States. It's, you know, it's the type of album you can just kind of throw on, spark a doobie. No, I don't smoke. Um, but you just sort of throw on. We can tell that you don't smoke by the way that you said spark a doobie. Yeah. <laughs> like you... It was the whitest, like the least, most hip, Holy like, moly. most narc way to do it. Hey, guys, <laughs> is anyone carrying? I'd sure love to spark a doobie. That would also be a great reggae name if you did become a musician spark a doobie <laughs> like Buster rhymes my name is spark a doobie <laughs> it's funny i like this album when you first suggested it or made it available to us i put it on listened to it and it felt like the the only choice between the four of us or between uh, our eight choices that sounded like something off of an island oh i yeah. felt like you could you could <laughs> interesting yeah you could i hadn't thought about that if but you yeah actually showed up at this island and this song and this album was playing you'd be like yeah, man, mm-hmm. I like this. Is this is yeah? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's it, it kind of shows a lot of the versatility of this type of music. I think one of the things I don't like about most reggae is it's just got this one same sort of yeah. feel to it, and it seems very interchangeable to me in a lot of ways. And you look at the stuff that's that's on this album. You go from something it's almost like you said gospel influenced mm-hmm. with many rivers across to super up tempo kind of rock oriented. Yeah rock feel stuff like uh, pressure drop and then a lot a lot of stuff that's more kind of you know more classically yeah. reggae influenced yeah so i think it's just a great mixture of stuff it definitely i'm uh my my parents had this album and i didn't know what reggae was or i didn't know what ska was but i definitely had interpreted it as something that was listening to music from the united states in its various forms rock and gospel and motown and even country western and then reacting to it in a completely original way that was fueled by faith and the culture of this smaller island community and and was really really exciting so i think i had that same reaction when i heard that album it's just tough to listen to this album and not be put in a good mood yeah i it it, it just really is so I, if you're talking about the utilitarian 
sort of nature of this this album, I would think, be something to help lift me up if I'm getting a little mm-hmm. dark about being stuck on this desert yeah. island for 50 years. Yeah, and all the messages are about enduring or during uh, opposition and and. Challenges. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a lot of sort of kind of persevering mm-hmm. through tough times. So yeah. I think that definitely would be appropriate. Yeah. All right, Michael, what's your next? Uh, my next one is, at some point, guys, I'm going to be drunk on fermented coconut milk. That's and I'm going to need to karaoke. <laughs> and there is no better album to karaoke all the way through. Than Four Non-Blondes. That's right. Yeah. It's uh, Weezer's album, Weezer, oh, yeah. a.k.a. the Blue Album. I mean, not only is this one of the best albums that's come out of the 90s, but every song on here is just a blast to sing yeah. along to, whether it's Buddy Holly or Say It Ain't So mm-hmm. or... My name is Jonas. Is that a blue blue up to sweater? My name is Jonas. Sweaters. That's mm-hmm. the opening. song um in the garage like every yeah it's funny to go down the list and it's it's a short album it's got i love karaoke on the silent all right michael you're up next <laughs> michael make sure you tip make sure you tip your your waiters uh, <laughs> I, it's a short album let's but have like, a run for michael okay up next michael <laughs> all right woo. go ahead and tip a, bad, put a sand dollar into the uh, tip jar <laughs> all right i'm gonna sing uh the world is turned to left me here okay on three <laughs> The world has okay. But it's like, it's amazing how just the good feelings I have and the good memory yeah. from this album and just singing along. To, I know that whenever we go out karaoke, I, That's, it, it's pretty much guaranteed. This what they, my name is Jonas or Buddy Holly or something will will, will be one of mm-hmm. Michael's services. Uh, Say It Ain't So is one of those that just comes on yeah. and the guitar riffs yeah. kick in and then you just start singing, you know. You just start screaming, say it ain't so, and it just it just kind of takes over. Yeah, try not to air guitar or air drum when one of these songs comes on. That's why you were mentioning Stephen Merritt and saying, "Here's a guy who's kind of analyzed the pop." song and its attributes and what makes a good one or a bad one is that's pretty rivers cuomo right oh uh so me and my wife went up to see them recently uh at the santa barbara bowl weezer was playing and i was amazed at how many of like the singles that i knew yeah like even from later albums that i haven't listened to all the way through you know we're talking about cherry picking singles and stuff but like uh like their weird song pork and beans yeah It was just super fun, yeah. and like, like he knows how to write a single, mm-hmm. and like Beverly Hills is silly, and like all of that, like even their later stuff where yeah. they're really self-referential. Yeah, they have a song called "Back, Back to, to the, the Shack, Shack," yeah, which talks about like this guitar strap. It talks about how great the Blue Album was, basically yeah. saying like we did a lot of weird stuff over the last ten yeah. years, but we're gonna try to remake the Blue Album or yeah. get close to it. And th- I mean, this album from you know from. One to ten is just – I mean, it's nearly perfect, and I don't – Do you think that – so they, they do this album, and like you said, it's just hit after hit, song after song. And then they do – Pinkerton. Pinkerton, which I know was kind of a labor of love, I think, for – I think it was also kind of a miss, like, critically. Um, but people love it. Oh, it's, it, it's one of those that, like uh, – oh, what are those movies – like, cult movies? It's almost like their cult album where at the time people were like – I don't understand what El Scorcho is. This right. mm-hmm. this is why this is your first song from it. Yeah. And then you listen to like Pink Triangle and some of the other ones that feel like a weird love letter to yeah. this weird kind of quasi so, not not emo, but So what I'm curious about is after Pinkerton comes out and it kind of flops, it kind of just mystifies everybody. Do you think that the albums since then have been some sort of weird reaction to this well, you love the blue album, but you hated Pinkerton, so now we're gonna kinda Waffle between the two or sort of play Maybe. with your expectations of that. That, that might be a good point because, like, you know, it went Blue Album, Pinkerton, Green Album, 
Maladroit, like the Black Album. Mm-hmm. Like they kind of go up and down where it's like they kind of Hurley, you know, Hurley was a weird. Mm-hmm. Ratitude. Ratitude. Oh, mm-hmm. Ratitude. And then they came out like, you know, this last year they released the White Album. And it was another one of those that was very reminiscent of what they've always been trying to get ultimately come back to. It's like it's it's, it's almost like they don't have they, they can't fuse the two. Yeah. It's it's either a blue album or it's kind of one of the weirdo kind of albums. It's like they're out there and they're fishing and they keep casting their keep, line out. They keep they fishing. Keep fishing. Yeah. They keep casting the line out further and further, but then they kind of reel you back in with an album uh-huh. that's ultimately trying to get back to their yeah. first. It's like one for us, one for them. Yeah. So uh, Richard. Okay, on to my final one. And this kind of gets a little bit into my adulthood. And I always like soul music. You know, I knew the you know the, the the Motown songs, and I knew the you know the Sam and Dave and the mm-hmm. some of this stuff. I hadn't really gotten into it till I got a little bit older, probably in my my mid twenties. I really discovered soul music in a real deeper way, I suppose. As much as a white guy can. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm 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 not qualified to talk about this. <laughs> doobie doobie spark spark a doobie over here. Rainbow uh, knit cap wearing hacky sack in the quad playing playing John Zorn. <laughs> so I it, and I had the chance to go to the Stax Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, cool! Which is, if you guys are ever in Memphis and get a chance, I would absolutely recommend it. It was for me. It was so much more powerful than going to Graceland or going to even Sun Records, which I loved. But Sun Records is just like this one. You go into the studio and it's like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. So, and Stax Records was this super influential kind of Southern soul label. Again, they had Sam and Dave. They had uh, Booker T and the MGs. Uh, later on, Isaac Hayes. And this artist was probably their biggest early artist of all was Otis Redding. Mm-hmm. And so the album... For me, that I think was his greatest album was Otis Blue. And this was his third studio album. And it actually came out, I think, I I take this back. It's his third studio album, and they recorded it in 24 hours. Oh, wow. Just like this one, like, 24-hour session. They just knocked it out. Smoked a doobie, and then... I hate you so much, Michael. (laughs) I wouldn't say it's loathing, but I... You'd say it's pretty close to loathing. <laughs> Otis Blue was also a pornographic film done by the character from the Andy Griffith show. Um, <laughs> needed some money. Needed you know, some money. <laughs> bail out all these uh, drunken escapades <laughs> that he had. Floyd the Barber made an appearance. I don't, I don't know where we're going with this. It's terrible. Um, so it has a lot of the same musicians that a lot of the Stax albums would have. It Steve has Cropper. Yeah, Booker T and the MGs. Yeah. Um, it's got the Memphis Horns. So it's a lot of those uh, kind of say the core Stax mm-hmm. um, group. But it, for me, it's probably the quintessential Otis Redding album. Otis Redding, who I don't know that you would say he had the best voice of all the soul singers. Like he covers a few uh, Sam Cook songs on mm-hmm. this album. Covers a lot. Yeah, several. I think there's like three. I have to double yeah. check. But yeah. um, several in a Solomon Burke song. And, you know, certainly with Sam Cooke, he may have the quintessential, like, perfect soul voice, just mm-hmm. in terms of that voice. But I don't know that anyone really got across sort of the emotion of these songs better than, than Otis Redding. Mm-hmm. You know. It almost felt like the blues infant influence was evident in Otis Redding while Sam Cooke had a gospel Yeah, I mean, Sam Cooke was that bridge between gospel and kind of soul. I mean, Uh he really came off of the gospel circuit and and moved on to basically create soul almost. Mm -hmm. And Otis Redding was a lot more, at least to tease him in the studio, he was a lot more country. Mm -hmm. He came from like backwoods of Georgia somewhere. And what he did was a lot more instinctual. People around him would say he was basically a genius with music, even though he wasn't someone who read a lot of music. Mm-hmm. But he could come up with horn lines oh, in really? like five ten five ten minutes, tell them what to play, and they would just work perfectly. Ah. That's one of the songs, not on this, but it's called the Fa 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 song. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, came about because he just get teased that that was how he would tell people how to play the horn parts. Go fa 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 fa. So they basically wrote a song based off of that. But this has got so many of his best songs and, and, and covers. It's got Respect, which he wrote originally. Apparently wrote in like 
15 minutes in the studio because Al Jackson, the drummer from Booker T and the MGs, mentioned to uh, Otis Redding, Otis Redding had been complaining about being on the road road so long and, and you know what would happen when he'd get home. And Al Jackson said something like, well, you know, you're gone for months. About the only thing you can expect when you get home is a little respect. Uh-huh. And he just took that line and ran with it yeah. in like 15, 20 minutes, banged out. Oh, the song that you know later Aretha Franklin covers and is one of the biggest hits yeah. of, of the era. It's got I've Been Loving You Too Long, which is this incredible ballad. If you go watch the uh, Monterey Pop Festival documentary, it's the song that he, it's kind of like the big powerhouse song that he did. It's got Shake, which is a Sam Cooke song, but is basically taken to the next level. And even something like the covers, there's My Girl, he covers this. And I think if you hear those two songs back to back if you hear the temptations version and then you hear the otis redding version you absolutely hear the difference between the very i would say slick motown sound the very polished i guess is a good yeah. word for it versus the very raw and edgy yeah. Stacks records, especially Otis and it's cold outside. I've got the month of May. Oh, wow. Packaged for a white audience versus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd never heard all of these versions before, but. Sure. It was uh, really good. Yeah, I'm, and they cover sat- he, he covers Satisfaction. Yeah. And. Well, do you think, do you think that just, there's an, a, an aspect of this that kind of is a best of, but a best of other people's works? Well, I think it's just the nature of what the you would expect there. in the mid-60s, yeah. yeah. You know, he was a very natively great songwriter, I guess, and that, again, he didn't have this training on how to do it, but he mm. just had the instincts, and that's kind of one of the tragedies about when he died he had really started to synthesize a lot of other stuff. You know, he after Monterey Pop, he hung out in San Francisco for a while, got into the Beatles, and started to incorporate more of that kind of stuff into his writing. Mm-hmm. So like sitting on the dock of the bay, yeah. certainly different from a lot of this kind of raw soul stuff. I mentioned Satisfaction just because it's another example of a song that apparently a lot of people, after hearing this... started uh, accusing the Rolling Stones of having stolen the song from Otis Redding. Oh, they wow. were so convinced that it sounded like it would, it's, was natural to be a, an Otis Redding song uh-huh. first. Yeah. The people just assumed that the Rolling Stones had ripped him off. Oh, wow. So, yeah. and again, this is, this is certainly, you got to dance mm-hmm. <laughs> on, on, the, <laughs> on, the on the island. island. Yeah. You got to dance like no one's watching because... <laughs> No Literally, no, no one's, one's watching. watching. <laughs> so it certainly is. I think if I if you were to need to get yeah. get get your motivation up to try and get that uh, that raft put together for your 150 second attempt to uh, <laughs> get off get off the island in a very Gilligan's Island sort of way, that's what you need. <laughs> I wonder if the Harlem Globetrotters or Sonny and Cher or whatever who will sh- or Mama Cass will show up on the island like they did for the uh, our castaways at Gilligan's Island. We can, animated o- we, can, we can only hope. Who would it be today? It would be like a Chloe Kardashian. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Or like I don't know. Yeah, who are Perez those? Hilton. No, he's already out of there. Okay. Uh, so he may already be on an on a, on a desert <laughs> island for all I know. In a while. All right, Michael, you've got your last choice. Make it good. My last choice is the album Play by the artist Moby. Oh. And here's another one. We talk a little bit about I think I think a lot a big theme through a few of mine and some of Richard's has been like this kind of variation and mu- you're trying to have an album that kind of covers a lot of territory and uh you know, Moby's play kind of traversed a lot of different genres in one mm-hmm. album. It had, um, you know, electronic kind of dance stuff. 
and it had uh, some this weird ad hoc blues, and it was like it was put together from, you know, it was sourced material from a lot of, uh, you know, old records, and yeah, old blues recordings, and yeah. old longer format s- samples, um, shorter samples, yeah. yeah, you know, in a time of, you know, artists like. Um, prodigy or like the chemical brothers who would be a bit more aggressive he found something kind of soulful within like the kind of dance Mm -hmm. realm and um you know and when i was writing this list uh you know i started to get a little jokey and i realized that at some point i've just lost my mind again (laughs) and uh if i need to license out any album or any music because whatever. Yeah. It's like, well, you go to the guy that had licensed out everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting. I was reading uh, up on the way that he kind of licensed music. And it wasn't necessarily to get rich, but it was to, or at least his, his argument was to get more people to listen to his music. Oh. Where he expected to sell something like 200,000 copies of the album and be like, okay, that was good or whatever. I, you know, that would be great today, but... Back then, it, that would have been a drop in the water. But if he could license thing, license, you know, songs out that are, you know, he had a ton of just like famous songs that. Yeah, I mean, this album is pretty much like every Apple, like or or Coke or whatever commercial from like the '90s all rolled into one. Uh, Porcelain was just this great song that kind of rolls in and kind of gives you like these big feels. blues as well uh just just great great mm-hmm. and different i don't think i yeah. heard anything like that and certainly uh to have this thing just like be such a success based on you know for him to be able to identify like this is going to be like a I'm gonna license this out to like this jason Bourne film i think yeah. one of his later albums was mm-hmm. songs was that that kind of brought it back in uh i i just i love this album and i think he kind of gets he kind of has like that, you know, kind of revisionist history of like people are like, oh, Moby's lame or he sucks. But like this album was like great from top to bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's one of those artists that certainly the backlash against him was pretty strong. I think he maybe I don't know if it's just the Eminem thing and that kind of just snowballed from there. Could be. I think that he kind of has like kind of a, a like a dickish attitude towards mm-hmm. things anyway. He's a little self-important maybe and i think also just you know because he was somebody who had no problem licensing his music that's always a weird thing in that like the whole notion of like being a sellout is so strange to people who literally sell their music or charge to go see them perform their music that someone that was did accept did it successfully is seen as someone who is not a real artist when he's the one that played all this music, recorded it all. He does it all himself. Yeah, it's still almost like people don't want musicians to make money. Yeah. I don't give a shit. I hope, yeah. knowing how little these artists actually make off of this most of the time, go nuts. Sell it anywhere and everywhere. I take kind of the Devo philosophy on this. Mm-hmm. They actually went ahead and, when you license a Devo song now, they'll re-record it. That way that they get 100% of the uh, oh, royalties wow. versus mm-hmm. having to pay part of it to their old record mm-hmm, label. Mm-hmm. Wow, they're really smart about that, huh. and I don't. I I hope I hope you know one of my when one of my favorite artists gets a song out that's on a like Brendan Benson was on a you know car commercial, mm-hmm. and I was like, God bless him. I hope people hear this song and like it and go look up the album, and I hope he makes a million dollars off licensing this thing. Yeah, he deserves it, and he's not going to get it. Yeah, you know, selling hundred thousand copies of his album or whatever mm-hmm. he sells. It is funny like, if you're a designer, a fashion designer, and your clothing appears in a film or something, people don't suspect you of selling out. I think they see that you've expanded your brand or something a mm-hmm. little bit bigger, or that you have more awareness. But it seems like musicians have a second job that they always have to do, and that is to keep it real. And by yeah. by selling your music, it seems to impact your perception of being a sellout or not. Well, and and 
if I remember correctly, this came out after Animal Rights, which was basically he made a punk rock album and was very divisive with his fans who kind of liked that sort of electronic can't get you know the electronic kind of breakbeat sort of stuff he'd done before Mm -hmm. and it has a very like i said it's very people either loved it or hated it but he definitely alienated a lot of his core fans and i almost wonder if by shedding in a lot of ways the baggage of having these super you know kind of hardcore um i've been with him since the beginning sort of fans that kind of let him do something like play that was more commercially oriented. It's weird. Like looking through my list now, there seems to be like the strange, like the lead from each of them is all is very kind of like uh, inclusive or, or like very secluded as a person. Like Moby is notoriously a homebody. Same mm-hmm. thing with Stephen Merritt. Same yeah. thing with I'm, yeah. Uh, what's the guy from Radiohead? Um, Tom, Tom York, Tom York, yeah. and also we uh, Rivers and, and Cuomo. Also Rivers Cuomo. Yeah. Like all yeah. four of these guys are kind of almost on their own like desert island of themselves. Mm-hmm. And like I didn't put that together until I started thinking of an episode of like MTV Cribs just now, <laughs> yeah. where Moby was on there, yeah. and he was showing like his house. That's all you know. This is my recording studio in my house, and this is where it's all books. And it's he like lives a very like it yeah. seems at least a very monastic life. Yeah. 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 I think that's maybe why people don't like him to some extent too. It's just he seems like the type of asshole who would 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 yell would talk to you about organic foods for half an hour at a party. <laughs> and then like ironically makes like the Southside uh, video with Gwen Stefani and it's big and bombastic and just making fun of everything else that was Funny. my little apartment now. the title is play come on i'm just <laughs> i'm just doing trying to have fun with music here or <laughs> this should have been play question mark play all right so i think these gentlemen have uh, registered all their votes on their respective desert islands it's they put the uh, list of their four into a bottle they've collectively tossed them into the water <laughs> a message in the bottle oh my gosh the police wasn't on either of these um I send an SOS to the world. My choice is 100% Fun This by Matthew Sweet. And this is one of my favorite albums and has remained so. I come back to it in earnest you know, every two or three years, but it really pulled me out of a dark time after my first divorce. And its name, its title refers to, I believe, I, I believe Matthew Sweet has actually supported this, that re- refers to a, um, a dark time that a guy named Kurt Cobain was having after he realized that the music industry wasn't all fun and games and always 100% fun. And we all know where that led. But this album really served to pull me out of some some dark times. And it, like the albums that these, these guys uh, mentioned, it has what I perceive to be at least some different, um, different feels, different grooves, different stories, different styles in it. And so that is the thing that I would take to uh, Desert Island. Taco Bar. Taco the, Island. Taco, Taco Island. Taco Island. Taco Island. So now, uh, you know, of, of all well, wait, the... Wait, hold on a second. We have the Sandwich Islands, right? Sandwich Islands? That's all right to the Sandwich Islands. Maybe it's near Cook yeah. Island. Well, there's Thousand Island. Good night, everybody. It's, it's Thousand Island dressing. <laughs> it's Thousand Island. Oh, you've suffered this long, dear listener. We appreciate you suffering through the last few puns. Uh, for the moment that you never wait for, and that is when I get to determine who the winner is. And it's really difficult because we, admittedly, from the very beginning, these were very personal choices. There's really no wrong choice. Um, But I I will make my observations about the nature of the choices that were made. And what's so cool is that they're very thematically 
structured, at least in my perception, and very personal. Um, you know, if you're on a desert island, you have two choices, to, uh, to enjoy your life or pray each day, reach out to the world, send an SOS to the world for rescue. And I really feel like Richard's choices were a reaching out to the world. He described his evolution as a young person to an older person, and how some of these um, albums were choices of what you would, how you would want people to perceive you. Or um, in the John's case of the John Zorn, it was the kind of the message that he wanted to send out to the world as I'm a, I'm a cool guy with a lot of different kind of moods and a lot of different um, flavors and ingredients inside me. And and um, they sound delicious. You sound you are delicious. Anyone, anyone, if you were out in the audience, you get a chance to taste Richard Manfredi. <laughs> We recommend it. It's like the Runt's candy. There's so many different flavors. <laughs> all, and all of them kind of sour. All, all of them kind of sour. Um, but then so many of his, uh, the artists he chose had covers where they were in this dialogue with all the different uh, artists. And, and so I thought that was a really interesting So aspect. thanks for choosing me, Jeff. I appreciate <laughs> the... Uh... But Richard wasn't chosen. What? Michael Winfield was the guy who chose because... I think instead of kind of shooting up a flare and sending SOS to the world, he's enjoying his desert island, his Michael-only karaoke night. He's, <laughs> he's got a very personal, um, solitary, but enjoyable soundtrack to his life. And I've his, accepted my fate. He's <laughs> accepted his fate, and he's just going to have a fun with it. Um, so um, it even shows, whereas we all could have chosen a three album with three, three albums. Six Down I Love Songs was how many albums? Three. Three. Three and one. He even got greedy and said, "If I'm going to pick one, I'm going to pick a three, a three version." So screw your double album. Screw you your jerks. double album. Frampton comes alive. So that's uh, that's the winner this week is Michael Winfield. Cue applause. Okay, end applause. And so, uh, thank you for enduring this another longer. Um, yeah, we don't shut up about music. If you've learned, we don't shut up about. We try to space these music ones out because we know it's going to take up. More than your drive to work. Yeah, but I think there's such earnest and great uh, uh, commentary, and Rich, Richard and Michael also know a lot about music, so it's I always learn something from these. Next week, it's Mount Rushmore of butts. <laughs> we'll really get into that. Yeah. Wait a second. We'll really dig into those butts. <laughs> well, uh, from our own uh, collective Zezer Island, I, this has been Jeff. It's Richard. I'm Michael.